Are you ready to scale? Why not invest three minutes in our scalability index? It's quick, it's easy, and it's got specific guidance. Find it at evokinggenius.com slash scale. Hello, and welcome to Genius at Scale. Today's guest is Todd Abbott. Todd works with Mediafly in Florida. Todd, tell us about yourself. Uh, well, actually, Mediafly is in Chicago, by the way, but I'm in Florida, as you well know. Uh, you're in Florida. Got yeah. It. Um, yeah, so I'm, I've been a career sales and marketing executive uh, for tech firms, um, kind of branched off from more medium, large cap, was with some pretty big companies, Cisco, Avaya, Seagate, um, and then kind of sectioned off into uh, some startup world, uh, doing some transitions and taking over for a founder at Inside Squared and then uh, recently selling it to Mediafly is, uh, I'm pretty excited about the state of technology and how it's changing, how it's going to fundamentally change the whole RevOps function. And, and as an ex-sales and marketing exec, always struggling with the funnel and development of the sales process and being able to forecast, um, this is a pretty fun space to be in. So the product, like the, the toy you get to play with is kind of fun. Um, you know, so yeah, um, I'm, I find it's, it's less about me playing with the toy than it is more about uh, enlightening uh, revenue leaders that there's now an ability to manage the revenue process with real data uh, that we haven't had the opportunity or ability to do up to now, right? That, because historically in the revenue processes, we're always uh, dependent upon what the sales rep puts into the CRM system. And reps hate putting stuff in CRM. And so yeah, it's, that's, that's the first problem. They don't like putting it in. No, it's like paying taxes. They'll do it as little as they have to. And so as, consequently, we have lived as revenue leaders um, in a function, the most expensive function in most B2B companies, uh, without really being able to run it on data. It's all been judgment and interrogations and inspections. Uh, and I'm just thrilled that uh, we've overcome that technical limitation of data because now we can capture everything and start to really provide some insights and get out of the interrogation and inspection game. So the thing I love about my job is educating CROs uh, about how technology can fundamentally change how they implement their sales management system. So I get pretty jazzed about it. That's, that's interesting. So I, I, I work with a firm right now, it's a defense contractor. And I started about 18 months ago. And the first thing they did, they, they said the same thing. We, it's like pulling teeth, getting data from our, our business dev guys, um, because they, most of them were former army guys, like generals and colonels and whatnot. They don't want to give you all that. Right. But the other part, he as the CEO said, we're going to start being more um, discerning was the word he used about how we categorize because everything went on the prospects list. And so what they divided it, they divided it into thirds and it was... Um, it was uh, prospects, which are somebody that's in conversation to buy it, leads, somebody where we think will turn into a prospect, and fantasies. <laughs> and when, I, when I first came, once we distinguished that, because it, it, it had to be third, 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 he said we realized about 80% of our pipeline was worthless because they were all saying, well, we got, this, we got this $100 million deal that we're chasing. And you say, you got a one in 50 chance of getting that. We are not doing revenue projections for next year based on the fantasies. And he said, once we realized we were chasing a bunch of fantasies, they, they got to work. But how much of it, because um, he said the same thing. 
they didn't want to enter anything. And then what they put in was it was to save their job more than anything to make it look like they were doing something. How do you get how do you get um, RevOps people to put act like like real data in as opposed to fantasies? Well, the real key is to, to be able to assess a deal in one of those three categories. Um, you have to measure the customer's engagement with your team. And this is going to sound very obvious, but when I, when your value prop resonates, a customer will engage with your team. They'll right. see and they, they called that a prospect. We're talking to them. Yep. And then the prospect moves to another stage based upon bringing more people into the buying group and engaging more. And so what our system does or what technology now does is it captures all of the, the digital signals, the digital footprint through the process. Oh, interesting. And so I can capture meetings and adding of new buyers to the buying group, um, emails, conversations, analytics on what's being said, how it's being said. Uh, and so the system now can take the judgment out of the health of that deal uh, and make it very visible to both the rep and the manager. And so what, it, what I like to call it in my New York nomenclature, it's got a very sensitive bullshit meter. Right. And not BS on this deal. You haven't heard from this customer in two months. You've sent them six emails. There's been no response. This is a hope and a prayer. Like stop. That's a fantasy. Yeah. It's a fantasy. And so that's the fundamental uh, change that's going on. It's from the art of the sales where you're looking at the rep in the eye and you're trying to figure out which of those three categories is this deal to now leveraging systems. I don't need to look that rep in the eye because the system is going to tell me highly engaged customer, seven, eight, 10 people as part of the buying group. I typically don't win when I'm less than eight. And so I know I'm in that sweet spot and I know the engagement is really high. So I've got a deal. And, and I also want to be able to see when does a deal go cold? It's all based on engagement. Right. So right. Uh, it's all about taking the judgment out of it and just getting to facts, get to the data and let's right. look at the deal factually. Uh, and then holistically, now that because you're collecting all that data, you can start to profile, what does a winning engagement look like? And be able to spot deals that can become winning deals very early. So this is you can this, optimize for that too. Uh, unbelievable, right? So yeah. uh, the other thing that I always I, I always struggled with as a CRO, uh, you know, the CRO job is the shortest tenure job in 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 companies because you, you're the first one to take the bullet when things go a little right. bit off the rails. And the reality is we're most dependent upon every other function in the company, right? Marketing to create leads, marketing to help nourish deals, product. product. Yeah, build a decent product for me and we could sell it. Yeah. You no, know, and to know where, in fact, we win, where we lose from a product management standpoint. Um, and so collecting all this data now really holds accountability. Everybody, what marketing material really works? When does it work? What marketing material you may feel really good about and show up on a vanity metric, but nobody's using it or it has no impact. Or product team, uh, you know, I know you think you're, we should never lose against uh, this competitor, but the reality is when this competitor is engaged at this stage, our win rate drops by 20%. Right? So this forces dialogue cross-functionally that allows everybody to be aligned on where do we win, why, where are we losing and why, and let's collectively go put a, a plans in place to help the sales team execute versus pointing fingers, it must be sales as well. Okay, that's, that's fascinating. So that's the, that's the product that you're working with, which is great. Uh, I know you're also engaged actively in acquisitions and mergers and whatnot. Um, I'm curious, 
first off, how do you measure scale or is mergers and acquisitions the, the strategy that you've got to scale Mediafly to say, yeah, we're going to do it that way? Um, so for Mediafly, what's behind our acquisitions is really scale of the solution. Uh, because the other thing that's happening in the revenue uh, operations environment and marketing operations environment is that customers are starting to realize there's too many components within their tech stacks. And there's no way to get data and analytics out of multiple components into an aggregated view as to what's working and what's not. And they're also realizing that they're spending an enormous amount of money on product uh, on, on that, uh, that is meant to help the sales rep be more productive. Uh, and so tech stack consolidation uh, is now starting to happen. And so our, uh, we have an underlying architecture that we believe is a very a robust, scalable architecture, but there's some components of the tech stack that we don't have. And so it becomes a make versus buy decision. Uh, and make versus buy tends to be driven by time to market. Like we could go invest some money and build out this component or this component. Uh, I'll give you a good example. Uh, we had a white label of uh, conversational intelligence is what the technology is referred to in the market. That's basically the recording of a video or audio call and a transcribing it and then analyzing who said what, when to be able to assess the quality of that sales engagement. Uh, Gong, Chorus are the two power players in that space or have historically been. Uh, we had a white label because as I'm capturing all of the emails and meetings, I needed to also know what was going on in the meeting. Uh, and so we felt that that was core to us. We could have gone out and built it. In fact, a lot of the CI components, the solutions out there are based on a lot of common technology out there. Uh, but we, we felt like we needed to own it versus white label. And so we acquired. Um, and so our acquisition strategy um, in some cases is about consolidating a given space. But that's less, that tends to be more expensive. Right now, our higher priority is to fill in the, the gaps of where we think the scope of a revenue intelligence platform is going to encompass. Got it. So in your current role is who can scale the company fastest? The C CEO or, the, or someone in your position where you say, I could do a half dozen acquisitions or mergers this year. I could double our revenue this year. Um, yeah. How do you how do you how do you assess that? Not to say that you and I should sign a petition to say let's get rid of the CEO because he's not doing he's not doing much. I'm doing all the work. <laughs> but is is that the is that the model for scaling for you? Well, so I would say in, in our particular case, I think anybody, so I'm doing corp dev now. You can't do corp dev without it being in tight partnership with the CEO. And Absolutely. Um, yep. and he, he's the one that has to sell it to the board to dilute the shares to, to do these acquisitions. Yep. Uh, most of our acquisitions are, are predominantly equity-based. Um, and in this down market, it's easier to do equity-based transactions. Yep. Much easier. Everybody's, yep. you know, back down to reality. And so there's, and everybody's looking for a seat at the at the table before the music uh, um, uh, stops, and they don't have fun, right? So it's right. it's a prime market for me right now. Yeah. Um, and so our, our strategy is very much aligned as to where do we want to scope out our revenue intelligence platform? What additional pillars do we want to bring into our data fabric? Uh, and then I go out and find those targets and figure out who's who's in the market or who should be in the market. In some cases, they don't know they should be in the market, and I'm helping them to see the light. Um, and so we're finding companies that, A, have 
are great people, have great technology, but they, they're, they're orphans within the uh, VC's portfolio. Uh, they're not on the rocket ship. And at this, in this market, they're not going to get the funding. Uh, they're not patient for the next two or three years. They're not going to put more money into it. Yeah, they're not going to get the next round. Yeah. So you're, you're an orphan asset, but yet you're actually really good. Uh, you just need to find a home. And those are the perfect acquisitions for us. Right. Uh, and so I'm finding that we've got the pick of the litter here on some really good technology, some passionate people uh, to want to be part of a bigger company that uh, will consolidate this space and allow them to compete much more effectively against the competitors in their space because we change the buying criteria. It's no longer just a point solution. You may start off as a point solution, but then you can add pillars as you go and get the whole revenue intelligence platform. That's, so, that's interesting. Yeah. So the, the acquisition strategy for us is about filling in those pillars. Now, I do think uh, we're in the process of going through a recap, looking for a much deeper pocketed VC private equity firm, because there are some consolidation plays that are not necessarily additional expansion, TAM expansion, new pillars, but consolidation within. Um, but those tend to require a component of cash and stock and deeper pocketed. I think you're going to see a lot more of that over the next uh, six to 12, 18 months. That's it's, it's interesting. So the funding market or the VC market has actually played into your hands right now because people have, they have gotten a healthy dose of reality in the last six months. Uh, the right. Fed's helped out with that, but stock market's helped out with that. Uh, that's right. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. And, and a lot of the VCs are actually happy to have it go become part of their asset, become part of another company. Uh, most VCs don't like to really spend a lot of time helping a struggling company. Uh, they focus on the shiny object. And right. if you've got 20, 30 companies in a fund, they want to go focus on the ones that are going to really deliver the return. And if if you're not a shiny object and you need more money, um, they're more inclined to say, let me go park this somewhere else. And uh, it'll probably deliver a return two, three years down the road, but I don't have to spend any time on it. Yeah, yeah. It's it's uh, in talking with VCs in the last six months, especially they're they've had their biggest raise ever and they're stingier than they've been in 10 years. Yeah, because they just they're so concerned that even an unbelievably gifted founder isn't going to make it in a tough market where mediocre founders a year ago could make it because there was room for them. And <laughs> it's it's uh, it's confusing, I think, to people who got stupid money <laughs> a year ago you go yeah the stupid money ain't ain't around for a while uh, the market I, i'll tell a quick story for you we 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 did an acquisition we haven't actually disclosed it yet because we won't uh, deliver a product for about six months um but this was a company that had been around five years gone through a couple of iterations the last two years they had really gotten it right um ceo got a call on a friday said hey man shut it down uh, send an email out to your customers on Monday. We're shutting this thing down. Um, we really want to close out the fund. And he literally was totally caught off guard. Um, and this and and the fund, uh, the head partner of the fund, great guy. In fact, we got him to sell us the assets and he invested in MediaFly. Um, but he said to me, he said, listen, I mean, I've made seven times my money on this fund. Uh, you know, this company was going to take another two, three years. Maybe they would, but, but I, I'm on. I'm on to the next fund. The, the next hassle. Yeah, I don't need the hassle. Now, and he was he's, he was a better capitalist in the sense that he really wanted to take care of his team as much as possible, and so we took a bunch of the team. Uh, but that's what's going on. It's it's 
it's you know this it's about time management. A, a VC partner has X amount of hours in a day, just like you and I. And where does he or she want to spend their time? And spending it on a smaller company that's been two, through two or three iterations, been in the portfolio for five years, going to take another two three years. That's not where they want to spend time. And another check. Yeah, they don't want they don't want the hassle. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Yeah, it's hard to tell. Uh, new founders get it, but the the ones that had a an over overinflated Series A or B, and they're looking for their B or C, they're struggling to comprehend. They say, "But we're 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 killing it." And you go, "Yeah, but it's a it's, it's a different market now. They are not going to throw funny money at you. They're just yeah. not going to. Uh, they're not. There's no way. That's uh, right. Yeah, that's interesting. So." You've also served as a CEO. You were a C CEO at Insight Squared. Um, curious, in your experience, is there, because you may see it now at Mediafly, is there a pivotal event? Is there a, an episode or is there an inflection point where you get the hockey stick and you say, ah, you know, a lot of people, as ironic as it is, they said the pandemic was that. As bad as it looked for everybody in the first 60 days, some companies said, this is the best thing that ever happened to us. We, we were able to cut costs or we were able to uh, ramp up our, or accelerate our product or we were able to focus on this more. And that was the inflection point and they've, they've killed it since. And there, uh, some of them are a little sad to see it go. <laughs> yeah. um, is, have, what's your experience about, you know, is there, is there a period or an episode or an event that shifts you, shifts you into a different, category or different lane or is it just you know continued progress um well, i think it's continued progress but i think there's some key components that will determine the slope of that of that curve to your point on a tipping point um in in my experience and i have fallen into this trap where i've i, I have believed my own solution being so good how could everybody not be buying this um uh, and I've seen uh, companies that have just, I've been part of companies that have scaled. And I think what I walk away from those experiences is it really starts with the usability of the product. Uh, if the product, uh, no matter how good it looks on paper, is hard to deploy, hard to use, uh, is a high maintenance product, uh, it will be virtually impossible to get through scale. Certainly profitably, you'll have to throw a lot of people at it and that just doesn't scale. Um, and so, I wish in earlier in my career, I had spent more time on one less bell and whistle and easier functionality, easy, easier onboarding, easier usability. Um, that's like point number one. Point number two is then you have to build a community. You have to get, so we're selling into the C-suite. Need, you need to have a group of CROs that have gotten the return and are willing to talk about it. And in fact, talk about it even without you asking. Uh, word of mouth in the enterprise space is everything. Um, uh, I mean, as an ex-CRO, I never took uh, BDR calls or, 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 you know, or demand chain calls or sales rep calls, like never. Right. Um, uh, and, you know, it's the old challenger adage that 60, 70% of a customer's decisions are already, are, are their, their analytics and their research is already done before they ever engage with the vendor. I totally agree with that. Um, but a lot of the education now is not uh, off of your website. It's off of community-based centers. It's talking to other, uh, other peers as to how are they tackling these problems? What solutions are they using? Uh, and so you've got to develop that community and develop that set of case studies and develop 
that that word of mouth marketing. If you have those two, uh, then you you it's just a matter of when the inflection point will hit. If you don't have them, I don't think you ever get the inflection point. So I'm curious with the shutdown of things like trade shows and and uh, development, you know that where do you get that when people couldn't be with each other? Face to face, did we? Was that just a blip on the radar, and, you, and we'll see it down the road? And you say, no wonder the, this this didn't work because you couldn't do our annual show, and we missed it for two years because of pandemic. Or was it? Is it not that simple? Yeah, no, I was becoming less and less enamored with shows uh, from an enterprise sales standpoint. I mean, decision makers typically just there's very few that will go to these shows. Yeah, certainly a large enterprise. They send a team, but they don't go. They do. That's exactly right. Um, and so I was becoming less um, enthusiastic about shows. Shows had become, before COVID, had become to highly productive sessions talking to your current customers. Uh, and maybe you got a couple of, uh, of leads in there that were kind of in the sales process. So it was very productive for meetings. But from a lead gen standpoint, I, I, I'm, I was becoming much less enamored. We had cut budgets from uh, trade shows. Um, because everything is done now from a research standpoint online. And now there's a lot of online communities where information is shared and you have the visibility ability to observe and watch and see and consolidate input as to what people are talking about relative to your solutions or relative to this space. Uh, I find those are way more productive and effective than trade shows ever, ever were. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, to me, it's about developing those communities, bringing those communities together. I mean, like-minded executives want to meet with like-minded executives and learn from them. The yeah. question is, how do you build these communities where you don't let everybody in? Um, you've got to let people in as they've earned the right to be able to coerce at this group. And so you have this layering of communities as depending upon where you are from a, a, a maturization standpoint, a skill set standpoint. Um, like I never wanted to be on a uh, in a in a forum uh, as a CRO for a, a billion dollar business with uh, a, a sales ops person in a hundred million dollar business like that was I don't waste of time hockey, yeah. but but there's just a different relevance on what we're talking about so how do you create these communities with the right relevance um, right. which feed off each other they actually become uh, more educated on how to best leverage your solution and they frankly talk more because they're getting more and more out of the relationship. Right, it's it's interesting, and and so how do you go about seeding or cultivating those communities? Do you build them yourself? Yeah, yeah, you do. Um, well, so there are some communities out there that you want to uh, participate in, but you I, you you have to uh, ideally create your own. When you get to uh, when you get in order to get to this pivot, if you are owning the community and letting people in, and it's growing and growing and growing, and they're learning from each other, it will feed off itself. Um, the analogy I'll give you is uh, I was with Cisco Systems in the early days, and the big challenge we had at Cisco was uh, we didn't have enough IP engineers in the marketplace to deploy the technology. We were coming from the IBM SNA world. IP routing and switching was relatively new, and so it needed to create uh, a, a tiering of communities of, we called them Cisco network engineers and Cisco networking experts. They were certification levels that were very hard to get. We created, they created these communities. It became a badge of honor. It became a skill that uh, people actually looked for and recruited for in the market. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was a masterful 
uh, approach before the internet was really around because the IP routing and switching was enabling the early, early stages of the internet. Um, and But it was a brilliant approach to creating this community. Yeah. Uh, that, that's one example. Um, when you're talking about C-suite, harder to get their time, but they will spend time if you limit it to their peers and they learn from their peers and provide input to us. So just think of a really powerful users group that continues to grow and scale, but you've got to have gates on it so you don't waste their time and they want to keep coming back. Right, right. That's very interesting. Very interesting. Um, you've been around fast growing and scaling organizations your whole career. Um, what's the biggest, I, I hate to say mistake, but what's the biggest lesson you learned for which you paid a pretty high price or paid a big tuition? Um, I, I, I've learned that uh, as you scale, the discipline of the management system is paramount. Um, and, the, and the consistency by which you implement that discipline right down to the first line manager. As a, as a CRO, I learned early on that I was going to live and die by the execution of the first line sales manager, no matter how many layers there were in between me and that person. And if I could get the first line sales managers to run the management system at a level of consistency so that we could know when things are going well and where they weren't versus trying to interpret data from Asia, from this country or from that region, uh, then my ability to course adjust, know what's going on, set expectations and course adjust and know where to go focus where we might be stumbling was paramount to survival and to the success of the business. So it's, uh, it's almost like you were the franchise owner and you needed all your franchisees to, to say, cook the hamburger this way and serve right. the drink this way. Don't vary. Don't screw around. Execute. It's so true. And, and early on in my career, I I was reluctant to force that discipline and say, hey, listen, I'm going to give you best practices, what I've learned. I'd like you to embrace it. But as long as you give me a forecast by the fifth day of every month. Uh, and then I learned over time, that was a mistake. That if you let them just go implement it in their own way, it's scattered, dysfunctional, undisciplined. You got, you got a thousand versions of the same tool. <laughs> and, and the challenge if you're running a global business is there's different risk profiles in different parts of the world. Uh, it's just how do you get that standard deviation of of how they look at the business as narrow as possible across a global organization requires a very strong discipline that frankly it's it's not it's you know I'm not looking for your vote this is what we need to do yeah this is yeah I'm looking for your salute not that's your right. vote yeah. that's right yeah, and that's then the other thing I learned uh, many times is that when you when you think you have it nailed down tight and the metrics are in place and everybody understands them. The moment you kind of shift to the right and stop focusing on that metric or on that aspect of that discipline, um, literally over a period of two to three months, you stop asking, you stop inspecting, and everybody else starts to waver. And then I'd realize, hey, wait a minute, we stopped executing or what happened? And I, I'd turn back and everybody was kind of scattered. And so as boring as it is sometimes, you that the consistency with which you inspect uh, the business uh, drives the alignment down in the organization and the consistency you need in execution. Hmm. That's interesting. Uh, curious how much scaling is facilitated by or hindered by the CEO's uh, ability to scale. 
Because you've been in an organization where you go, the only problem in this organization is the CEO. And you've been in other ones where you say, no, the CEO's out front, they're leading, they're they're in, improving, they're growing, they've got an appetite for this, and they're we will scale at the pace of our CEO. How, how have you seen those, those examples? I've had both uh, multiple times. Um, it's, you don't uh, have to mention names, but we give you extra credit if you do. I, yeah. I um, Our bus is all warmed up, so we're willing to run anybody else. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, the challenge with it is especially challenging for the CRO um, because you can see the, the lack of alignment from an execution standpoint for a non-execution-oriented CEO well before he, uh, he or she can. Um, and so there have been many times where I've sat in uh, monthly or quarterly business reviews with my peers and they're going through their functional reviews. And uh, I know it's a bunch of vanity stuff over here and vanity stuff over here. And a non-operating CEO has a really tough time taking this story, this story, this story and trying to figure out the common themes. A lot of times right. they're not uh, operationally, uh, they're not comfortable with the operational depth and and so they just you know, let their team go figure it out. And the problem is, is the team never goes and figures this out in an optimized way. Um, and so I, I, and it's really interesting in my current, uh, current uh, job is that I get to engage with CROs and I get to engage with CEOs and I can see what that dynamic is. And I can see what the analytical strength is or isn't within that C-suite. And it's typically between the CEO, CFO and CRO. If they are analytical, uh, uh, oriented and, and they have an intellectual curiosity to really understand how to optimize the organization and put in a management system that's based on data and facts to hold cross-functional, like those are the companies that are going to be successful. If you're still operating in the art of management and you're not rolling up your sleeves and really drilling in, what do I need from marketing? What do I need from product? What do I need from sales? What do I need from, from finance to support? What do I need from support? From like all those functions, if it's not tied together on an operating level with metrics to report that everybody looks at on a consistent basis, um, in this world of ever-expanding data and analytics, you're going to lose. Yeah, They will not be the survivors. Now, it's not going to happen in the next 12 months, 18 months, but boy, this trend is coming so clear. It's very clear to me. And that's one of the things that gets me excited is I really want to try to help these analytical CROs tell them, Hey, there's, there's now data systems available to give you data and insights that you've never had before. And so you can now gain control um, of the relationships and the accountability cross-functionally uh, because that marketing guy doesn't want to sit up there and give all these vanity metrics, really. Um, if there's an underlying partnership, an underlying set of data that says what, what marketing material works, works best where, I mean, that's, that's CMO wants to know that. That product lead wants to know that when competitor X introduced at this stage of the cycle impacts win rate, it's no longer now anecdotal. And I can't tell you how many times I've been in these meetings and I'll get an anecdotal, well, sales did this or sales doesn't do this. And it's anecdotes. And, and the CEO doesn't have the uh, intellectual, not intellectual, but the analytical depth to be able to call bullshit where to say, how do we bring the team together? And there's now architectures and technology that's just going to change that game. Right. And, and I'm, I'm really excited about helping customers that have that thirst to, to want to play at that science of sales, science of analytics approach. No, that's great. That's great. So who needs a bigger risk tolerance, the CRO 
or the CEO? Uh, wow, that's a good question. Um, I, don't, I, I think I think CROs by definition have a risk profile. Otherwise, you, you'd never take the job because it's it is it's a gauntlet. Yeah, it, it is a gauntlet, um, and you had to take risks to get there. So but you also don't have full autonomy. You, you don't still work. You work for the CRO or the CEO. They have a board to answer to, but they don't have to listen to the CEO, the CFO. They can take advice and then make their decision. You don't get as much autonomy. That's why I ask who's, who's got more, who's got, who needs more risk tolerance? Um, I, you, I, could I, abs you could absolutely get the CEO fired if you suck. I couldn't. You know why? You couldn't? No. No, I mean, if your performance is awful, the CEO could lose their job. Oh, absolutely. But typically, yeah. the, C the CRO gets hit six months before the CEO does. Yes, but you could sink the ship if you're, if you're atrocious. It could be enough of a recovery where the CEO gets, loses their job. That's, that's why I asked, who's got, who's got to have more risk tolerance? You know, I, I don't look at it as risk tolerance because I think most CEOs have a, most, not all, some uh, I, I would say, I guess in general, I would say the CEOs need need to have a, a take a little bit more risk, but but I think I think I would turn the question around. It, it's which ones needs to embrace um, a data analytics to to guide their decisions, guide their those uh, guide the management business more aggressively. Yeah. And as a CRO, I, I can I can influence by bringing this kind of these kind of insights cross functionally. But without a CEO having a, an intellectual curiosity, a thirst to understand more than just the surface. Like I've had some CEOs who are really great, one or two questions at the surface level, but then they can't go any deeper. Um, and what happens is, is that people in those reviews figure that out really quick. And I just need to answer the first two questions and he or she's not going to go any deeper. They're not going to challenge you on anything. Because they don't have the depth or the security to do it. Right. right. Uh, if they do, then then it's a much more engaging and it's a much more accountable, transparent management system. And the opportunity for continuous improvement goes up exponentially. No, that makes sense. But to me, if I could change one thing, I would try to educate the CEOs that that intellectual curiosity and the analytics around data of your business need to guide your, your way um, much more than what anything you've done in the past and the, the tools and technologies is now available to do it. And it's, it's, you're right. It's coming like an avalanche. Oof. Yeah. But it's yeah. astonishing to me, John, how many CEOs guys that have been in my, my, my tree of, uh, of having worked for me or, or worked with me. Um, if you're a large enterprise, uh, C-suite exec, some of this technology is coming really fast and they're in denial. Yeah. They're in denial. And my sense from talking, because they're my client, the CEOs are my clients, they're not embracing it so much. They're kind of afraid of it. Like I've always gone with my gut or my intuition is my best superpower. And you go, Until you don't want to be doing it. You don't want to be doing intuition when everybody else can uh, be at the poker table and win two out of three. Your intuition at best is going to get you one out of three. And that won't take very long before you're dead. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So hmm. it's, uh, 
I'm, so my biggest challenge is just to get them to under to embrace, I, a be aware that this technology exists and to embrace it. Don't fight it because you, you can't fight it. It's this yeah. disruptive technology and it's coming whether you like it or want it or not. Right. Right. Hmm. Um, I've asked every guest on the show because it's fun. If we, if we went to Vegas when you were in junior high, seventh or eighth grade and placed yeah. a bet and said, you know what? I've, we've watched Todd all through seventh grade. I'd be willing to bet he shows up as you are today. Who were you in seventh or eighth grade where, where the signs would have been there? We say, yeah. Or would you have been a surprise? Would you have been an outlier? Um, I think the answer would have been different in eighth grade versus seventh grade. Um, oh, interesting. Because in seventh, seventh grade, in retrospect, was a really uh, pivotal inflection point in my life. I was a very small kid, 100 pounds. Um, and in middle school, it's the first time when you have sports tryouts in schools. As you say, sports is a currency in seventh grade. If you're not good in sports, you've got no power in anything. Yeah. And I tried out for every sport. But here I am, this relatively short, 100-pound kid. Um, and the only team I got selected for was wrestling. All right, because it's it's weight, it's weight approach. You say, yeah, you can be in the 55 pound club. Yeah. <laughs> we need a guy that's only 55 pounds. You'd be perfect. And Lily was a smile. You're a mean SOB and you're 55 pounds. You qualify. I mean, it was a it was there was I remember it was pay, which which teams do you want to sign out for wrestling? Oh, what's this wrestling? I like I didn't even know. And it it uh, it charted my course. Um, I got quite good at it. Uh, wrestled all through high school. Um, I grew a little bit through high school, but that that the dedication, the it, you know, the thing with wrestling is it's an individual yet team sport. Yeah, you're yeah, out it's there, a tough, and it's you're, a tough sport. But you are, you know, you're practicing, you're sweating, you're 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 bonding as a team. Um, I had some great relationships, and it really drove a level of discipline in me and self confidence because in seventh grade. I mean, like, who knows? Everybody's what? a knucklehead in seventh grade. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, but it allowed me to enter into my freshman year in high school as a as a wrestler. And it made the tough transition freshman year uh, because they were watching and they knew. And so wow, seventh grade for me was a really pivotal, uh, life-changing year. That's interesting. So now we go to eighth grade. So in eighth grade, had we bet on you, would we have said, oh, wow. This guy's got discipline. He's got systems. He's he knows kind of what he's doing. Bet on him. Captain of the team, uh, leadership skills, kind of the wings. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, the wings opened up, and this kid, um, meek kid, who was, was so disappointed he didn't make the basketball team as his little squirt. Um, uh, <laughs> and and anybody probably would have said, yes, is anybody going to tell him he's got no shot? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> nah, let's let him figure it out himself. We don't want to tell him. Let him, yeah, let him see. Maybe he'll make it. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it was, uh, those two years were pretty, pretty life-changing for me. I, I, I enjoyed them. That's, that's great. But it's, it's interesting because if we superimpose that on everything you said today, it's about, yeah, we've got to get these guys to use metrics and be consistent. And there you go. That's, and, and leadership. You say, yeah, uh, captain is not necessarily based on uh, you're the best wrestler or the most valuable. That's leadership and and setting the example and yeah good for you good for you that's that's great i, I love i love that story <laughs> uh the the pivot and it's funny how uh 
normally when people say it was a pivotal time, it's because their families moved. And they said, well, after my seventh grade or in the middle of seventh grade, we had to move. You go, ooh, yeah. Who do you become when, you, you know, you have to do all kinds of, that's a major shift for kids to have to do that. So uh, that's funny. That's funny. Well, Todd, thank you for your wisdom, your insight. Um, I find we cannot have these conversations without people that have, haven't done it. So we don't, we don't ever interview college professors on entrepreneurism about the theory of scaling a company. It's like, no, no, you got to have taken a couple of two by fours right between the eyes yeah. or, or you don't qualify. And uh, so I appreciate your, uh, your contribution to, to the audience at Genius at Scale. It's been my pleasure. I always enjoy the time with you, John. Thanks for joining us today. Are you ready to scale? If so, invest three minutes in our scalability index. It's simple, easy, and gives specific guidance. Find it at evokinggenius.com slash scale. All the best.